for this, I was thrown away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had been given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the leftovers, and the five barley loaves were left for those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come there. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming in the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was on the land, and they saw Jesus. Good morning. Wow. Uh, y'all were lit last Sunday, but Jesus is still risen, you know. Still risen. That ain't a one-day thing, y'all. That's the consistent reality of the universe. And I'm done. Let's do communion. Um, right? He is risen. Yeah, it's still a thing, guys. Um, so we can show a little more enthusiasm. Uh, we, hello, my name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm trying to be the lead cheerleader, but whew, it is not working. Um, we are in the Gospel of John. We skipped ahead a couple of uh, times in the last couple of weeks to get to the events that Christians throughout the world and throughout the ages uh, observe the last two weeks with Palm Sunday and then Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We're sort of back in the normal rhythm of uh, the Gospel of John that we've uh, been in for a couple months now, and we arrive now, at these two extraordinary stories is really the only way to put it. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus casually walking on water. And we, um, well, let's just, let's just do this, okay? Let's walk through this text. If you have a Bible, really helpful for you to have that open. Here's what we're looking at today. 
we're looking at the unique and incomparable power of Jesus, okay? We're looking at two of the things that um, are really most extraordinary that he ever does, and two things that are actually interestingly mentioned in every single one of the Gospels, the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts. Uh, there's a lot of material that they share, a lot that they don't share. What's interesting is that all four tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and of Jesus walking on water, and they pair them together. So there's something here for us in the pairing of them together. One thing is that they almost certainly happen together. Um, that's why they're told together. But as we've learned about the Gospel of John, is he's always doing two things at once. Again, by the end of the series, I hope you roll your eyes every time I say this, because you're like, we get it, we get it, we get it. But in case you haven't yet, John is always doing two things. He's telling us what actually happened, and he's also telling us his much deeper, after decades and decades, reflection on the deeper meaning of what happened. So there's what happened, and then the deeper meaning of what happened. And I'll give it to you right at the outset here, is uh, these two things show us the immeasurable, incalculable, incomparable power of this one Jesus. And then they also tell us some things about what is an appropriate response. What is a faithful response to that incomparable power of Jesus? So that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's walk through these two accounts. I just want you to get a feel for them at first, and then we'll make some observations. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So we pick this up. Um, it's not super important where we are, because actually this this very first phrase here, after this, um, is, is a phrase that in the original language indicates a good amount of time. It's probably a year and a half after the last thing we looked at, which is this long conversation that Jesus has after a couple of healings. And so we, we've jumped pretty far ahead. Um, went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. What's interesting here is that this would have been known as the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' time. By the time uh, John is writing, it would have been better known as the Sea of Tiberias, Tiberias being one of the emperors. The sea was ultimately named after a city that, uh, that was named in Tiberius's honor and then became more the Sea of Tiberias. So John is actually sort of writing for his modern audience, saying, Sea of Galilee, you know it better as the Sea of Tiberias. We think sea and we think like Atlantic Ocean. Um, you've got to think more like I don't know, like Round Valley Reservoir or something. Like, uh, uh, Sea of Galilee is not huge. It's 12 miles um, north and south, 7 miles east to west. So not huge, probably a little bit bigger than that, but like not a massive body of water. You can basically, I don't know how many of you have been to Holy Land. I haven't. Um, would love to go. Um, but you can look across and see the other side. So picture a body of water. You know, you can kind of see glimmers of the other side. That's, that's where we are. That becomes important later. A large crowd was following him. We should be used to this by now because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So this is actually, really interestingly, this is Jesus at the height of his popularity. He has these massive crowds following him. We actually get a number finally. You notice that later on. Um, where you get this number 5,000, which is interesting. It says 5,000 men sat. That's just the custom of the day. You count the men, uh, you can hate on the culture of the time, right? Like that's how they did it. So you're probably looking at significantly more than that when you think of women and children along with that. 8,000, 10,000. Some say it could be as much as 15,000 people are following Jesus at this point. Um, What's more Jersey than Jersey Mike's Arena, right? I looked this up this week. Jersey Mike's Arena, uh, the Rutgers basketball and wrestling uh, facilities, uh, seats, 8,000. Um, so if you could picture that packed to the brim and then all those people out on a mountainside together, that's about what you're doing. I mean, this is an enormous amount of people who are following Jesus at this point. 
Just in my Bible, you have to turn. Maybe in yours, you don't. But check this out. Um, go to the end of this chapter, verse 66. So John 6, 66. Don't worry about the 666. It's okay. Um, check out what this says. After this, and Jalen will preach this next week, but after, after this, so Jesus does these two acts and then gives this very wild speech um, that drives a lot of people away. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe, we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. In other words, we go from height of popularity, 15, you know, whatever, 10,000, let's cut the difference, 10,000 people following him. And picture this, right? This is not at a, at, this is like, sort of like a rock concert without any amplification, right? Like, these are all people following him without a platform, without amplified sound, like, it's just an enormous amount of people trying to get within earshot of him. By the end, there's 12 following him. He's like, it's not even going to be 12. It's going to be 11 at most. So this chapter, interestingly, is a chapter of pruning. It's a chapter of um, things get real in terms of what it actually means to follow Jesus. And we have, as we have in the Gospel of John so many times, why is he at the height of his popularity? Because people have seen his signs, because people have seen his miracles, because people are like, cool, you get close enough to this guy, you're going to get what you want. You're going to get your heart's desire. You're going to get healed. You're going to get whatever provided for and all of these things. We're told explicitly that's him at the height. Something happens between that and the end of this chapter that is this enormous weaning down, you know, the weeding out. Um, so. What in the world happens? Jesus went up on a mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. This should remind us, right? This sounds like the beginning of what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. This could be the, the same incident. We don't really know. But maybe this is just what he very regularly did. Jesus went up on a mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. If you're a writer in your Bible, which I'd encourage you to be, actually, um, go ahead and, and just underline Passover for now. That becomes important later. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. I love that, as though it didn't occur to him that 10,000 people were behind them. He's like, my goodness, there's a lot of people here. But that's the impression you get. It's like he's so focused on his inner circle that it's not until he sits down, turns around, looks down the mountain, he's like, whoa, whoa. Uh, seeing that the large crowd was coming toward them, Jesus said to Philip, uh, Philip, by the way, is from the area. So, uh, so that's why he says this to him. Philip, uh, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He's like, where's the local Wawa? He's like, where, where can we, what do you think? Like, how can we pull this off? He said this, though, verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. It's the other thing that I would have you underline. For he himself knew what he would do. Peter answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would be enough for each of them, even just to get a little um, what he's saying here is he's throwing out just an astronomical number. Right? Just imagine this, right? It's hard for us to conceive of how many people this is. But imagine, right, like, I don't know, that, that crowd in Jersey Mike's Arena is now out on, you know, it's baptism bash or something, right? And I turn to Morgan and I'm like, so Morgan, how are we going to feed these people? Right? And she's like, you think we're going to feed all these people, right? Like, you know how much that's going to cause? It's like our whole church's budget for the rest of the year. Like, 
no, we're not going to do it. That's Philip's very reasonable answer, is he's like, Jesus, there's no way. Like, we don't have it. We don't have enough money. I don't care where the local Wawa is. Like, they don't have enough cold cups. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, there's no way. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, <laughs> but what are they for so many? Um, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. Why do we have a mention of that? I think we have a mention of that because it, there was much grass in the place. I think that this is John literally recollecting, like, oh, yeah, we had them sit because there was actually, because most of this is desert area. He's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Jesus had brought them to, like, a, actually a grassy place, so he has them sit. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That's from uh, Deuteronomy 18. Um, this is Moses who says, hey, there's going to there's gonna be one who comes after me who's greater than me. So you have mention of the Passover, and you have mention of Moses. Um, that's significant. We'll get to that in just a second. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is wild. This is just wild. It's like he takes, okay, so first of all, five barley loaves. Barley was, uh, was the bread of the poor at that time. This is not like the good stuff. This is not like the sourdough from your little sourdough, what's that thing called, starter or whatever, right? Um, like this is, this is like, yeah, this is like, you know, whatever, Wonder Bread or whatever, right? Like this is not the good stuff. Um, and it's small. You got to think like, you know, those little uh, sprouted grain rolls they give you at Panera, you know, that little thing? That's a loaf. That's more what we're talking about here, a little square of bread. Um, and somehow, Jesus breaks this, starts giving it to people. In the other Gospels, he involves the disciples. In this one, it sounds like he's almost doing this. And it just keeps replenishing. It just keeps replenishing. And he's like, here, you get a little bit of fish, and you get a little bit of fish. You get a little bit of fish. And it's not, sometimes I think of this, and I'm like, um, wow, there's so many people, they probably just thought, they probably just thought, oh, they found food somewhere or something. But it seems like one of those miracles that's very public. It's like everyone walks away like, yo, that just happened. Like, that really just happened. Like, they saw it. As the basket would pass, it'd be like, you'd take out the last piece of bread, and the basket would pass, and you'd be like, yo, there's bread in there. Right? Like, something about this is a little bit more public than, than a lot of times we get the sense Jesus' miracles are. Um, let's keep going. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. So they go off alone. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Um, this would happen in the Sea of Galilee. You've got a picture. It's got these mountains among it, and I'm going to act like I understand meteorology, but there's something about like the way cold air and hot air interact and the cold air off the water, but it's a hot place. It's a desert place that when winds swoop down, storms can come up really fast. You see this in a couple different stories where you're like, how did this storm... One, right, they don't, they don't have like swiping weather on their phones, right? Like they don't have hourly in their zip code that they just plug in and figure out. So, so one, you'd really have to anticipate this. But two, there is something about this spot in the world 
where storms just come up really fast. Even so fast that, that fishermen, right, like a lot of them are, are experienced seagoers, um, that this can happen. So this comes up quick. Sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, um, so if you picture this, I should have had a diagram of this, but if you picture this as, I'll use the O in God. This is kind of what the Sea of Galilee looks like, right? It's, it's an oval shape. They're probably somewhere over here, and where they're going is there. So they have to kind of cross here. It's not like a full crossing. It's more like from there to there, okay? Just to give you a little picture. So when it says that they've rowed three or four miles, they've rowed most of the way, right? Because they're, they're against the wind. They're rowing against the wind is, is how they get there. So when they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And coming near the boat, they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. They, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Okay, last week we talked about how a dead man wasn't dead anymore. I wonder if in our modern scientific mind, this might be just as hard a thing to believe. Like, do you believe that this happened? Can you believe this? He walked on the sea. One of the things, right, uh, said this to someone yesterday. What makes me believe that this is true is the active experience that I've had for a decade and a half now of the presence of Jesus in my life, and like I believe that the Bible is true. What makes me think it's true at a rational level, if I was logically reasoning with it, is the disciples' reaction. What does it say their emotional reaction to Jesus walking on the sea is? They're afraid. This, this is told in the strongest possible language. They are terrified. We are not told that they are terrified of the storm. In other gospels, it says, like, oh, they were so concerned, blah, blah, blah. Right? There's one where Jesus is actually in the boat with them. They're really scared. We're told storm comes up, they row it out. Right? We're not told that this storm in particular is one that they feel like their life is in danger. When they get scared is when Jesus comes walking on the sea. That feels really genuine to me, right? Again, if you're trying to trump this up and make it, it's like, and then the coolest thing happened. Just as we had anticipated, Jesus, the God and creator of the universe, capable of anything, came walking out to us. It was sick. And we brought him on the boat and cheered and said, that was amazing. They're terrified. This is so beyond the Paul, right? Like this is so beyond any conception that they have of Jesus at this point that they're like, yo, what? What? No thank you, too much, too crazy, too out there, right? And it says he's got to come close enough and he speaks something to them. What he says, what he said to them, but he said to them, they were frightened, but he said to them. So there's something about what he says that calms them. What he says to them is, in translation, it is I, do not be afraid. That's not, that's, that's not the best translation. One of those places where a translator just subtly bails on us a little bit. What he actually says is, and I normally don't talk about the Greek, but it's worth saying here, what he says is ego a me. Ego a me in the original Greek. That is, that is, Ego is the word for I, and a me is I am. It's, a, it's an emphasis way of saying I am. He says, I am. Right? 
He will say this many times throughout the Gospel of John. He will say in the, in the next part that you'll hear next week, I am the bread of life. Ego a me. The bread of life. Ego a me. I am the good shepherd. Ego a me. I am the resurrection and the life. Ego a me. And then sometimes he just says like here, ego a me. You know what that is? That is the sacred, precious name of God. You don't say ego a me at that time. This is, this is the name of God in the Old This is Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean in the Old Testament? It means I am. It is the sacred, relational name of God spoken with spoken in trembling by mere human beings, but spoken by God and declared by God in moments of his profoundest revelation of himself. Moses, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard this story. Moses, when he encounters the burning bush and he has a sense that he's in the presence of God, he says, God, tell me your name. You know what God says? Now, it's not in the Greek, it's in the Hebrew, but God basically says, ego a me. And Moses immediately knows he's among something otherworldly. He takes off his shoes, right? Like, I don't know. Like, I take my shoes off, right? Like, whatever. I don't know. He doesn't know what to do because he's in the presence of such holiness. Now that God has revealed him, ego a me. Jesus comes walking on water. They're terrified. And he says, ego a me. They let him in the boat. <laughs> they're glad when he's in the, and then they're home. Do you hear that? But he said to them, It is I, Ego and me, don't be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You stand in the presence of God, you do what God is asking you to do. You're totally undone. There's two things that happen every time. Uh, Isaiah experiences this, Elijah experiences this, Moses experiences this, King David experiences this. When you encounter the holy other presence of God, two things happen. You fall down in utter terror because you're in the presence of something so much greater than yourself, right? We know this. When you're in the presence of someone or something, right? Uh, think of whatever it is, right? Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, there's this sense of exaltation. There's also this sense of terror because you're in the presence of something so great. When we see the nebulae and things in outer space, there's this, there's this joy and this beauty to it, but there's also this sense of, oh, you, you feel your smallness. You feel, you feel a kind of fear. They fall at the feet of God. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing, you listen up and you do what he asks you. So they say, ego, he says, ego a me. He says, can I get in? And they say, yeah, we're glad to take you into the boat. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They've been rowing, rowing, rowing. Ah, geez, ah, ego a me. He gets in the boat, boom, they knock into land. And the whole, the whole situation is over. Okay, what in the world is going on here? Um, First of all, as, as cool as these things are, as amazing as these things are, think of especially the feeding of the 5,000. If this were merely a display of Jesus' power, there's better ways to display your incomparable power, right? Um, think about it for two seconds. Uh, 
There's a crowd of 10,000 people, and you've got the power of God in you. You could do anything, right? And you want to prove to these people that you are God. What would you do? What would you do? I don't know what I would do. I'd probably do like a little Iron Man thing, maybe levitate. I don't know, maybe like pick up the mountain for a second and then drop it or something, or like make a big wave, I don't know, like a sculpture out of the sea. Like there's more dramatic ways than be like, five loaves and two fishes, let's distribute, okay? So it's not merely a display of his power and his godness, okay? Even the walking on water, as amazing as it is, still is a little random. Still like, how did you come up with that, right? Like, where did you think that through? Like, why not just fly out, like in the middle of the storm, end the storm, and then just be like hovering there like the superheroes do or something, right? Like, what's with the walking on water? This is where the mention of Passover and the mention of Moses is significant. We get this really random mention that the feast of the Passover is imminent, and then you get this mention that the people's response to it is, oh, this is the prophet like Moses. What was Passover? Passover was the celebration of the events leading up to the liberation of God's people when they were in slavery in Egypt. How did that go down? God said, sacrifice a, a lamb, the Passover lamb, put blood on your doors, and when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your homes. So a bunch of people in Egypt are killed, including the Pharaoh's own firstborn son, and he says, get out of here. I want nothing to do with your God. You win, right? And he sends them out. Then he has a change of heart, and he wakes up in the morning, and Pharaoh says, that wasn't a great call. We need those people. Those are our slaves. Let's go after them. Then what happens? Moses, who is leading the people out, comes to where? Comes to the Red Sea, right? And what does he do? Charlton Heston, he puts out his arms, and the seas respond to Moses' command, and they part, and the people walk through the sea to safety. Then the people are in the middle of the wilderness, and they're being led towards the promised land, but between Egypt and the promised land is wilderness, and they're out in the wilderness, and at some point, they turn to Moses, they're like, yo, there's no food out here, my guy. Like, there's no, we are starving, and, and the little bit of water we get, and the little bit that we can scrounge around, like, it's not enough. So God, well, Moses goes to God, Moses is like, God, you hear these people, there's so much, right? Like, sweet Moses, like, he's constantly intervening on behalf of these people. What does God do? He sends them manna from heaven. What is manna? Bread. What does manna mean? You remember this? What is this? Wow. Look at you guys. This is very encouraging. Manna literally means in the original language. Yo, what is this? This stuff comes down, and the, the scriptures are at pains to try and describe it, and, and the people end up calling it because when they go the first morning, you can imagine they're all like, what is this? And they're like, yeah, what is it? What is this? What is this? And then I almost picture that they make it a joke, and they're like, we should call it, what is this? We should call it manna. That'd be kind of funny. God provides them, what is this? Really? Like this, this? But it fills them, and it satisfies them, and it's just enough for the day. And the whole rule is, when the manna comes down, when the bread comes down, you take enough for your family for that day. You take exactly what you need, because the next day that manna is going to be there again. That's the story that we're supposed to have in mind as Passover and Moses are mentioned. Now check it out. Jesus, who has been declared 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is now leading a crowd of people who find themselves in a desert place. There was grass there so that they could sit comfortably, but they're in a desert place. Oh no, what are we going to do? Do you hear it? That's the mention here where he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, which by the way is the same word that's used again and again of God's relationship with Israel in the wilderness. He's testing them. He's saying, do you trust me? Do you know that I'm capable of caring for you? I just freed you from slavery. Don't you know that I have purposes for you, that I'm for you, that this is going to be okay? And he tests them. doesn't test them like, are you good enough? He tests them to say, where's your loyalty? I've still got to get that, let's just go back to Egypt instinct out of you, and I've got to get you to trust me. God turns to Philip and he tests him. For he himself knew what he would do. When there's a group of people that have been led out into a wilderness place, God will provide. He might not provide the way that they expect. It might be a little like, yo, what is this? That's what I picture. They're passing the bread and they're like, yo, what is this? They pass it. What is this? They pass it. <laughs> and it's like being whispered in the crowd is manna, manna, manna. Now God's people are out on the sea having just experienced the manna in the wilderness. And a storm rises up. The sea, which is associated, um, not just, for us, the sea is a locale. The sea is, is 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 a natural, you know, we don't think of it beyond, there's no symbolism to a big old lake. To them, the sea, water, they're not a seafaring people. They don't have planes that can get over oceans. They don't have big boats. They're not like the Phoenicians up north who have figured out seafaring, right? They're scared of the sea. So the sea becomes associated with chaos and evil and the wickedness of this world and and. And the enemy himself, and this is why Revelation constantly has when the enemy comes at the end, he's coming out of, guess where? The sea, the sea, the sea. This is what we have mention of. In fact, to the point where we are told that ultimately one day in the new heavens and the new earth, do you know what the one geographic natural feature that will not be there, we're told is? And in that place, there is no sea. It's one of the weirdest things that's said of the new heavens and the new earth. Because if you like the ocean, you like the coast, you go, really, none of that? And then, no, 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 it's symbolism. It's symbolism. There's no sea. There's no chaos. There's no evil. Now God's people are encountering it. They're in the midst of it. And he comes walking on top of it. Listen to some of the Psalms. These put up uh, Psalm 77. It says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Listen to Psalm 107. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. 
For he satisfies the longing of the soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. I'm kind of jumping through the psalm here. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. It's like a summary of our story, does it not? Right? He feeds. He delivers from the storm. And check it out, man. He doesn't just feed. What, it, what was the manna? The manna was daily provision. It was get enough for today. Leave nothing out there. You weren't supposed to store it up. If you stored it up, it was gone by the night. In this feeding, we have 12 baskets full left over. In other words, every single disciple is sent out to collect extras, and every single one comes back with a full basket. Super abundance. <laughs> Very reminiscent of the feeding of manna. Way better and superior, way more lavish, way more above and beyond. We have Jesus not just stilling the waters, not just passing through the waters, but walking on the waters of chaos. Again, very reminiscent of the Exodus, very reminiscent of those far superior, super, amazingly above and beyond powerful of what we would even expect. You see, Jesus isn't just showing off. He's not just showing his power. He's one, identifying himself with the God of Israel and saying, ego e me. It's who I am. I'm one and the same. And yet what I've been sent to do is not just laser light shows. It's not just magic shows. It's not power for its own sake. I have come to rescue you. I've come to deliver you the way that Yahweh did in the Old Testament. I've come to be a, a true and greater Moses who will lead you out of far greater danger than even God's people were in, in Egypt. You see, he knew what he was going to do. There's a pattern here. This has all the fingerprints of God upon it. That's the point. At some point, at some point, we've got to get better at believing that God really has and will operate in certain predictable ways. The scriptures talk a lot about knowing the ways of God, and I think that this is something that really marks the maturing of a follower of Jesus is you say, um, there's a phrase that, that Sarah and I uh, have said throughout our marriage, which is like something goes wrong, there's some big whatever it is, financial hit or whatever, and we, and we turn to each other and we say, is this finally the time where God is just going to utterly abandon us, where his hands are tied behind his back, and there's just no way forward? Because what we have seen again and again is in those moments where it feels like, okay, it's over. We're totally out of law. Oh, my goodness. We're every... every Somehow, some way, in whatever timing, God shows up and does what he does. And so at what point 
do we begin to actually exercise faith rather than thinking that our fear plays the role of drawing God close and allowing him to do what he's going to do. God is not drawn by fear. He's drawn by faith. Right? He doesn't respond. To, he doesn't need our fear. Now, look, here's what's beautiful. He responds to both, y'all. That's probably actually an inaccurate statement. He responds to fear. He'll come to you in your fear. He'll come to you when you're hungry and at a loss. He'll come to Philip when Philip's like, I don't know, Jesus. How could we possibly do this? Right? Like, he'll come and show up. He don't need, he don't need that, though. He doesn't need your fear. Okay? It actually makes me think of, uh, I haven't thought of this example in so long, but uh, I'll, I'll say it. Um, I think of this like... Uh, when you have little babies, we, we were a formula family. Go ahead and judge us. Um, but we did formula, and you'd have to heat it up, and you'd have to shake it and all this stuff. And it got to the point where Dre, um, who's no longer on formula, <laughs> um, where, where Dre would, uh, when he would hear the microwave door close, he would freak out. He would freak out. And, um, and then we would finally get it done. He'd be freaking out and going crazy and, and fighting us. And then finally, we'd get the crazy thing in his mouth, and he'd get fed. Why would he freak out? He would freak out because his little immature baby brain told him, oh, I know how this goes. The microwave door closes, and then everything's at stake, whether I'm going to get fed or not. And every time, I freak out, and then I get fed. So I better freak out. Or else maybe that sound means the lack of provision rather than me making it known I need what's about to be provided. That's folly. That's foolish. That's insane. You know what, you know what it did? It made it more difficult for us to provide what he so desperately knew he needed and what we knew even better he needed. It wasn't helpful. Dre. Right? Like, <laughs> it was <laughs> But... In his, little, in his little baby brain, it was part of the process of being provided for when it was actually a hindrance to the provision that was already on its way. And so when Jesus says, Philip, what are we going to do? He's going to say, do you see it? It's all here. I'm standing on a mountain. A lot like Moses. There's a crowd here. We're in the desert. They're hungry. You think maybe they'll be provided for? And he goes, yeah, even if we could find the wallah, I, I don't know how, where we're going to find the money. And then Jesus says, what do we got? What do we got? Got to get better at saying, what if I exercise faith this time? What if I just trusted? Yeah, I've been here before, and I've seen what God does. What if I trusted this time? All right, so, so what does faithful response look like? Uh, two, two things that, that I came up with. Um, first, you got to give them what you've got, right? <laughs> this is the part of the story that I actually think is funny. You got to give them what, what you've got, right? Think of this kid, right? We're told he's a boy. Think of this a boy. And um, he's, he's with a crowd of 10,000 people, and everybody's hungry. But my man's got lunch, and like a pretty decent lunch. And we know because he's got barley loaves, he's poor. He's a poor boy from a poor family, right? <laughs> so I was thinking all week. I'm like, he's just a poor boy, right? And Jesus takes his lunch. 
well, properly, Andrew takes his lunch, and then Jesus doesn't give it back. You can picture him being like, the, the one we're all following needs it. And the kid being like, okay. And then Jesus takes it, and he's like, wait, he's giving it out. Oh, man, right? Think of this kid. He gives what he's got. And we don't get, I don't know, I don't know. We need to use, you know, holy imagination here. I don't know, maybe the kid was ticked. And the kid was like, yo, what gives? But, but we're not told that. It seems like the kid just gives it. It's just fine. Like, if, if, if the Lord has need of it, if Jesus needs it, I'll give it. I'll give what I've got. Um... I think what's really hard about following Jesus, and we see it throughout the Gospel of John, is we really want Jesus' power to flow through us under our own terms. We want it to be like, all right, Jesus, if you're capable of anything in the universe, here's what that should look like in my life. Right? <laughs> like, here's, here's how I think that power should flow out of me. I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this. And then the stuff that we actually know Jesus has called us to do, we're kind of like, yeah, but I don't, I don't really want to do that, right? And when we say, yeah, but I don't really want to do that, right, we cease to treat him as the all-powerful, incomparably powerful, all-knowing, all-everything God. Because we say, I think I have a better definition of my needs, and I have a better definition of my limits, and I have a better definition of, right, like what, how my life should go. So there's really no other way to say what it looks like in most cases to give God what you've got is to obey. It's to obey. And I think where we can get this really wrong is we say, yeah, but God hasn't revealed his will to me yet. And once he does, I will follow when he reveals. And what we mean is this very narrow definition of God's will, which is like, where should my next job be? Where should I move? You know, what relationship should I be in or, or not be in? When I used to have a professor who would say, 90 plus percent of God's will in your life is crystal clear right now. It's crystal clear, right? It's forgiving those who have harmed you. It's um, being radically generous in all of your life. It's proclaiming the gospel to, to those who need to hear it. It's being kind um, to, to those that God has put in your life. It's, it's all of these things that we go, I know, I know, I know. Whoa, 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 wait. When you step into those places, right, call it simple everyday obedience, that's actually where what we think can only happen once the mysterious will of God gets answered. And we say, I knew it was computer science in Dubuque, Iowa all along. And now I step in and, oh, like the power of God flows through me because I discovered the will of God. We think that it has to wait to that level of specificity when actually in our everyday life, there are so many opportunities to obey and have that sense of God's power flowing through us, of being used. Isn't it beautiful that he uses this kid? He involves him in it. Can you imagine the wink that this kid gets at the end of this miracle where Jesus says, that's my guy, or like, right? Like he involves him in it. We see this all the time. Jesus involves him. He wants his power, not just to be independent. He wants it to flow. He wants it to be participation with us. This kid gets to participate because of the simple act of obedience where he says, everybody's hungry. I got something. It's not enough, but I got something, right? And I picture all of these, if you'll allow me a moment of a little imaginative, right? I picture all of these people sitting and they're like, I wonder what the will of God 
for me is. I wonder if Jesus will tell me, you know, my fortune and tell me what's out ahead of me in five years. And they're gnawing on their lunch. And then it gets around. Everybody's hungry. And they're like, wow, I wonder what he's going to do. Wow, I wish I knew the will of God. I hope I get an audience with him. And they're, and, and they're consuming for themselves what they have when simply giving it away would be the, the conduit to them being involved in this amazing thing that Jesus does in the world. And I think for us, we so badly, the, the analogy that I've heard is like, um, uh, have you ever been singing? This, this really would only happen in church. But have you ever been singing and you realize the person behind you is like a really good singer? And it makes you just a little bit bolder because you feel like now your voice sounds like better than it ever has before. Or, right, like you're, you're playing loud music in your car and Whitney Houston is just going in and you're like, me too, right? Like, and you're just like with it and you feel like you sound amazing. You know full well, you turn off that radio, the person in front of you starts singing, everyone else goes quiet and you would be like, you know, whatever. <laughs> you would be back to your regular self. But the, but the sense that they're singing through you in a way, gives you this sense of, oh yeah, we've got more capacity here. This is what it's like being used from God. It's like he's, he's singing from behind us. And there's an opening up in us of, man, I've, I've never felt more useful. I, I've never felt. Now, none of this is your own power. None of this is your own competence. It's God through you. But this is what obedience can feel like. This is like when you really, really forgive someone. You have this sense of, that felt amazing. When you take the risk to open your mouth and create some God space, right? In an evangelistic conversation, you say, hey, what, what are your beliefs about God? There's a sense of, well, there's, there's something flowing through me, right? And yet we think we have to wait for some level of specificity that frankly may never come when there's so many things already spoken over our lives, so many opportunities we have right here and now, right? Like after this gathering, if you feel a little prompt to go pray for someone, go pray for someone and feel that. Experience the power of God through you. But we've got to give him what we've got. Notice, right? This kid has to lose control over his lunch. We think we can maintain control over our lives and experience the power of God too. That's an impossibility. We've got to be powerless for his power to flow through us. But that's really scary. But it happens progressively over time. We go, well, I took that risk. I feel like God showed up. Maybe there's another risk, and I was obedient over here, and God really showed up, and it wasn't as terrible as I thought it would be. Got to give them what we've got. Second thing is we've got to believe that there's purpose in the storm. What Psalm 107 says, which is really cool, is it says, God stills the storm. God can pass through the storm. God's also well capable of creating storms. And the scriptures, right, I think of, of the D course that Kimberly and I just got done teaching. And, and one of the things that the scriptures do is the scriptures are just very nuanced in how it talks about God and suffering. It says, yeah, God can cause suffering, but to see all suffering as caused by God as though every single suffering has a lesson that God wants you to learn is just not the biblical view of it. So it's very nuanced. But certainly what it says is no matter what the origin of that storm is, no matter what's ultimately to blame as the source of the trouble in your life, God is well capable of bringing purpose and meaning out of it. Because normally he'll do one of two things. He himself will meet you in that storm. 
and change your view of him and change your understanding of his sufficiency. Or he will use that storm to grow your own maturity such that you're more capable of walking through storms in the future. What do I mean by that? Let's take the second one first, right? He can use storms. It's funny that the Gospel of John doesn't mention this, is in most of the accounts of this miracle, you have this mention that who gets out of the boat? Peter, right? Peter's like, I want him. Such Peter-ness. Um, where he's like, cool, Jesus is walking on the water. Everyone else is terrified. Peter's like, <laughs> uh, me too. Uh, like, he's on, he's on it. But he goes out, and, and, and whatever is flowing through Jesus actually comes to characterize Peter, right? Peter is on the water, and then why does he sink? Takes his eyes off Jesus, right? He begins to sink. Now, what's Jesus teaching him? Look, your eyes got to be on me. You got to be dependent on me. This power doesn't flow from you. It flows through you. You're not a water walker, Peter, okay? I'm the one who walks on the seas, not you. This isn't perfect. You've got to be more dependent on me, but this is what it feels like. This is what it's like. He's molding things out of him. He's molding doubt out of him. He's molding, right, like his sense of failure. I wonder if him walking on water is one of the reasons why he recovers from his failure a little bit quicker to say, no, no, there's a power that can come through me still, right? Who knows? This is something that, right, the, the letter of James, the brother of Jesus, says again and again, look, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because why? Because you know that the testing of your faith creates all of these things that are actually of ultimate value to God. They create character and they create perseverance and they create putting your hope in something other than these things because so often the storms of our lives will come and destroy the things that are stand-ins for God. Do you know that? That's why the storms come. The storms come often, not always, but many times to take out of our lives the things that have been holding up Right, like the false shelters you can think of it of. The false shelters we've been using to be fake gods, to be fake saviors, to be insufficient saviors, to be insufficient gods forth, it takes those things out. And it makes us say, okay, I need a firmer foundation, right? Like this is the story that Jesus tells about the two houses. Build your house on the, not on the, right? Build it on rock, not on sand. Why? Not because if you build your house on a rock, storms don't come. It's because storms will come. And when the storm comes, you find out what you built on. That's Jesus' point. Storms will come. They're coming. Storms will come, right? And either they can be used to mold you to get stuff out of your life that doesn't need to be there and get stuff into your life that does need to be there, like actual genuine character, actual trusting in God, actual consideration and empathy for other people, right? Like this is the stuff that storms produce in us. That's one thing that God can do. So he can change us, mature us, or he can show us, and or, right? These aren't exclusive, but and or, he shows us who he is in the storm. He shows us how much greater he is in the storm. That's what he's doing here. He says, I am, I am. There's no, gosh, I love that name for God. You couldn't come up with a better one. You couldn't come up with a better one. God is like, you want to know who I am? I am. <laughs> I am. It's me. It's me and no other. Right? It's an exclusive name. I am. And, and, and in that, everything else is not. There, there, there's not a was. There's not a will be. I am. 
He says, this is, the, I am, I'm here, I'm now, there, there's no, I'll get to it one day, there's no, yeah, I was back in your story, I am now, I'm with you now, is what he's saying. And that's why they're glad to take him into the boat. Here's the analogy that I think of. I don't know if you've ever been in like a really busy um, train station, picturing like Grand Central. Ken's a mess anyway, but picture Grand Central because you can kind of picture looking out over it. Um, and, you know, you walk in, and you know you've got to get to whatever, track 12 over there. you got a kid with you. <laughs> what are you telling that kid, right? It's rush hour, everybody's going in and out, right, all these commuters. You tell that kid, you hold my hand, you stay close. Hold my hand, you stay close. And you go down those stairs, and now you're in it, right? Now you're in the rush. And that kid, right, gripping you tighter, looking up at you. Now, what's that kid's experience? Kids experience total and complete chaos. <laughs> they don't know if they're going forward, backwards. They, you, they wouldn't be able to tell you the destination anyway. They don't know what a track 12 is. They don't know that it's actually how they're going to get home. All they know is in this moment, I, I need to be making progress because the one that I love is moving. And all I can do right now, because I don't see it, I don't get it, I don't understand, all I can do is stay close and grab that hand. Move through that chaos. And just keep looking up, going, okay, we're still moving. All right, I'm still close. Okay, yeah, I got, I got their hand, right? And then at some point, you merge into your destination. That's Jesus. He's saying, look, in the storms of life, if nothing else, you hold my hand as hard as you can. I am taking you somewhere. It's going to feel like chaos. It's going to feel like, what are we doing? going to feel like, are we even going forward? And guess what? Sometimes we're not, right? If, if you know what that feels like, sometimes you got to go around that way. Sometimes you got to find that hole, right? Now you're the parent. What are you trying to do? You're trying to get up above what's going on. You're trying to see little openings that maybe isn't a direct line, right? You know it might not be, a, it's impossible for it to be a direct line, but you say, okay, there's a little window over there. Okay, now we're going to just come with me. Aren't we supposed to go? Just come with me, right? Okay, now we're going over there, right? And you know, you know I'm getting you there. I'm getting you there. God says, I've got you. We're going somewhere. And I, I know it feels like we're moving away from what it, where, where we should end up, but I'm, but I'm telling you, I, I see a window over here, and then I'm going to move you here and just keep gripping closer, and at some point, we'll be home. And I know it doesn't feel like this is the way home, but it's the only option. After that kid has gotten safely there, right? What do you think will happen the next time they stand up and it's rush hour and it's Grand Central Station and they say, hold my hand. Right? There's an inclination to say, okay, I know how this goes. I know how this goes. <laughs> I'll just hold the hand and stay close. I know that whatever it feels like, I know we're going to get home. One of the things that Jesus is saying is, this is why I would have you underlined 10 times. He said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. He knows what he's doing. Right? I've had to tell myself this 100,000 times in the last year. He knows what he's doing. 
And he's saying, can you stay close enough to me? Can you hold on tight enough? Because we are going home. Father God, I pray that we would be among those who hold tight to your power. God, that we know that we are so often powerless. We feel like kids. We feel like kids uh, in a busy, chaotic world where we just can't get our head above the crowd. We can't get our head above all of the circumstances of our lives. But Lord, we know that you walk on top of that stuff. You're walking on the chaos. And God, I pray that as we, we believe that you really are capable of that, that, Lord, we would grab your hand and stay close. And God, I pray that we would be able to trust that, God, you are bringing us safely home. So, God, whatever work we need done in us, whatever pruning we need done in us, God, I pray that you would do it by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.